Grab your pitchfork, light your torch, and get ready for inciting a riot. Conventional thinking has been warned. Because we're going to gather, and we're going to march, and we're going to blow its f***ing house down. Hello, rioters, and welcome back to Inciting a Riot, the podcast. I would be your left-wing, dirt-worshipping host, Firelight. Today, I am, uh, I am so honored, humbled, and thrilled to present to you an interview that I did with art historian Susan Owens. Uh, she's also an author. Uh, you might have seen her name next to the likes of folks you might have heard of, uh, like David Attenborough. Um, but she has struck out on her own uh, and published a book called The Ghost, A Cultural History. Uh, and I, I'm pretty fascinated by the idea of the ghost not as a you know a scary sort of mysterious uh, entity that we seek out in the dead of night but more as a cultural figure what the ghost says about us uh, what the ghost says to us and what we um, uh, sort of what we project onto ghosts uh, as as figures of myth of folklore and of culture um, so I, I'm so excited to, to present that interview to you. But before I do, I just want to remind you that uh, Inciting a Riot and Inciting a Brouhaha are uh, funded through you guys. Um, You guys make these shows happen. You guys are the reason why uh, shows sound better and better and better um, and can come out more frequently because of your support through ways like Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash inciting projects, link is also in the show notes, uh, allows you guys to give as little as a dollar per episode so that these shows can continue. So as you're going into the new year, possibly consider throwing a buck or two our way um, every month just to make sure that that uh, independent pagan media can continue to exist, can continue to thrive, uh, and can continue to uh, do things like get really cool guests and improve technology uh, and keep up with the frequency that these shows need to come out. Um, so like I said, if you're if you're interested, consider giving as little as a dollar per episode through patreon.com slash inciting project. All of the rest of the show notes are going to be on the website at incitingariot.com. But for now, here's my interview with Susan Owens. Thank you so much, Susan Owens, for being here with me today here at Inciting a Riot. Um, Susan, uh, for folks who don't know, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know that you're an art historian. You have sort of an illustrious career and then made a left-hand turn into ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I, well, my, my first degree was in English literature. So in a way, ghosts came into that fairly early on in my life, because the course I took was really broad, but I was essentially, a, a, a I loved the Victorian and Edwardian periods. And of course, that's really the golden age for ghosts and, and ghost stories. So reading authors like Dickens and Henry James and and then privately writers like M.R. James really bolstered my, my love of ghosts at that point. And then I, I went on and became an art historian after that. I studied at the Courtauld and I ended up working at the Royal Collection 
and done at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, looking after paintings and watercolours and, and drawings. And so that sort of brought some of the visual culture in as well, because I always loved that my early, what I'd studied early on with books. And so I was always interested in the how the two met books and visual culture. So I was interested in illustrations. And then when I went freelance from the V&A about six years ago, I decided I wanted to write a book about, about ghosts and that brought in both of those elements. So how we think about ghosts in terms of visual culture, but also ghosts in our literature as well. I think that's really fascinating because you don't talk about ghosts from sort of a spiritualist perspective. You don't talk about the idea of the ghost as something that you get out and, you know, at 3 a.m. with a lot of black and with a lot of tools and things and go hunt. You talk about ghosts as sort of a, a figure of culture. Um, you know, there are uh, the, the the grand ideas of the old Hollywood monsters, right? There's Frankenstein's monster, there's the swamp thing, there's the werewolf, there's the witch. There's, you know, there's sort of these iconic monsters, if you will, um, that, uh, uh, you know, sort of take up a different um, archetype for people, for the werewolf, it is the beast within man, and and the idea of transformation. For the witch, it's the woman on the edge of society that men can't control, and it's a very patriarchal story. Um, what, how, how did you approach the idea of the ghost as a cultural character rather than, than you know, how people typically approach it as, as a spiritual entity? Well, that's interesting, but I, I think it was really, as I was literally leaving the VNA to to move to to Suffolk, um, which is in a, a very quiet, very rural part of East Anglia, if anyone know, knows the, the area. And, and it's it's full of medieval houses. And so we bought a medieval house and, and moved into it. And but everyone I knew from London, they all said, um, but surely you're in such an old house, it must be haunted. It must have ghosts in it. Because everyone associated a, a really old building with the idea of, of ghosts, that they must somehow have accumulated in dark and shadowy corners or on the crooked staircase or wherever. That it, they'd just sort of be in here somewhere. And I think, think what interested me about that was that we certainly in the UK... I think perhaps you in the States as well, and certain European countries, we absorb ghosts in our childhood and they become part of the way we think about life. And I think more so than um, other supernatural figures, uh, witches and werewolves and so on, I think they all have a place. Mm -hmm. But I really think that ghosts are figures that just move with us throughout our lives. We all sort of think about them. And I certainly know that because whenever, as I was writing this book about ghosts, pretty much everyone I sat next to, at, at, at any point, if they said, what are you working on? I said, oh, a book about ghosts. They would immediately start telling me their ghost stories. These stories would just spill out and they were really fascinating. In fact, I, I really wish now I'd written more down and, uh, and I could be publishing a whole new book of these true life ghost stories. But that's really what, why why the figure of the ghost appealed to me. It just seemed to be such a, a, a trigger, such a, a, an automatic thing for, as I say, almost everyone, the, the least likely people, the kind of, you know, the retired law professors, who I think would really think I was being rather silly writing a book about ghosts. 
they were actually the ones with the most terrifying uh, true life stories I, oh I've ever heard. <laughs> So, so the idea of the ghost, you know, you, you say that it's sort of been with us um, and, and that it's something that sort of starts in childhood. And I agree with that. I mean, I, you know, I think that everybody has sort of that story before even really knowing what a ghost was, um, you know, as an adult or at, even as a child, as you start grasping these concepts of, of uh, you know, th- that's sort of in the cultural milieu, this, this the notions that are picked up from people around you. Um, even before hearing that and understanding what those are, everybody kind of has a story of, oh, when I was three, I saw my grandmother. You know, when I was, mm-hmm. you know, they have these stories for whatever reason, whether it's something there, or it's a trick that our minds are playing on us as we're as we're understanding, uh, you know, sort of imagination and things like that. But where does that begin in history, in research? Where did people start writing these down? Where does our notion of the ghost come from? That's interesting. I I, re- I try to find out, I try to go as far back as I could in the written record to find the first person uh, in Britain talking about ghosts. And actually, it was really early. It was at the 8th century, um, a writer called Bede, one of our great uh, um, early medieval historians. And he mentions the idea of ghosts. He mentions the idea of human spirits coming back from heaven, but in their own form, not transformed into angels or anything, but coming back as themselves with um, what I think were supposed to be comforting messages for those still on earth. Messages like, oh, don't worry, you'll die shortly and join me in heaven, <laughs> which I suppose was maybe comforting in some way. Um, but, well, but so, a thousand but years ago, point. maybe maybe dying an, an early death was a blessing. <laughs> it may well. Life wasn't great. <laughs> But but it was it was there the idea of the human spirit returning and somehow making its presence felt after death, which is essentially I think the only way we can really safely uh, characterise what a what a ghost is. Then that seems to be absolutely there, present as an idea as far back as that, and we can only assume it probably goes back. Well, who knows? It might go back for thousands of years. We've just got no idea in prehistory how people thought about their ancestors. They clearly thought their ancestors were very important because they buried them in these very special tombs. But did they think their spirits were still flying around? Well, I'd I'd love to know, um, but it's so difficult. But after that, after that that idea with Bede and in early uh, medieval times, you can really trace the story, the, the story of the ghost and see how ghosts are thought about and depicted and described right up to the present day, which is which is really quite quite something. And what I love is that ghosts change over time. You can see them changing. They change what they wear and they change what they do and how we feel about them changes as well, which is really odd when you think about it. That actually some, well, sorry, you go. go no, it, 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 it's incredibly odd to think about because, you know, you, you sort of think of the spirit of, a, of the deceased as, as a fixed entity, as a fixed sort of point in time, as living history. Um, but, you know, you sort of talk about this in your book, you know, the idea of sort of the living conscience uh, consciousness of of you know the memory of a person, and, mm. and it's it's what stays around. And and I wonder, you know, 
if it is the living memory of a person, how does that change? And what are the implications for, you know, people saying, oh, I, you know, I spoke to the deceased, uh, to the ghost of Anne Boleyn. I spoke to the ghost of my grandmother. I spoke to the ghost of whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, that tend to try to give a voice to some of these entities. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of stories mm -hmm. of people that claim to have interacted with these ghosts and given voice to a dead person. Is there an ethic there? Is there a, you know, what, what, what how does that work? How does, you know, the idea of uh, speaking to a memory function as far as, um, you know, the ethic and the cultural aspect of it? Well, we've certainly made ghosts do things. We've put words in in their right. in their mouths for a long time. So uh, some of my favourite ghosts are, are are medieval ghosts, and they're painted on. Well, they're sometimes drawn inside little psalters or prayer books, but they're sometimes painted on church walls. There are still some of them in existence. I've been to see them up in Norfolk, not not far from here. And these ghosts are walking skeletons or walking corpses still wearing their their shrouds, but they're all tattered and decaying because they've got up out of their graves. But they've got up out of their graves to give us a message. And that message is, you will die soon. Life is very short. Look at me and remember that actually you will die and make sure you mend your ways. Essentially, mm -hmm. be a more moral person, go to church, um, um, say your prayers, be nicer, be more ethical with, with people. That classic and Christmas so carol story. <laughs> at that point to, to, to really, to, to frighten people into, into behaving well. So that's one really extraordinary way in which ghosts have been, we've sort of, We've kind of communicated with ghosts and they have communicated back with us, but a, a Christian message, they brought a Christian message back. You, but then, of course, sorry. No, no, no. You, you even talked about, speaking of Christian messages, that they were even used as sort of tools of the church to get, to get money, to get influence, to get a foothold in, mm. in communities. Yes, there, there's a, a, an amazing uh, group of stories that were written down round about uh, the year 1400 by a, a single monk who was at a, a, a monastery up in Yorkshire called Byland Abbey. And he uh, had he had a book which was prayers in the front and some history at the back, but they were a few blank pages in the middle. And amazingly, what he did was he wrote down the stories that local people in the area came and told him. And these were stories of their meetings with with ghosts as they went about their, their daily business. So there's one story of this tailor called Snowball, who's on his horse and he's riding back home to Ampleforth. Um, and it, it, this was quite, it's quite a remote area now. At the time, there must have been no one around at all. When suddenly he realises that above him there's a, a crow that's behaving really oddly. It's kind of flapping its wings and it's uh, sending sparks out from its side. So the tailor looks up rather dubiously at this crow, but then thinks, well, uh, I'll just carry on and hope it goes away. But it doesn't go away. It shoots down and it stands there in the path in front of him. So the tailor gets off his horse and confronts it and says, well, what, what is it? What do you want from me? And the crow then suddenly transforms into a black dog. And the dog says, 
actually, I'm a soul in purgatory. I'm suffering. And please, would you say prayers for me and give money to the church in order that my time in purgatory, where I, I'm being cleansed from my sins, will be made shorter and I can get to heaven more quickly. So isn't that an extraordinary story that, that someone told this monk and this monk wrote it down and somehow this book has come come up come forward to us to the present day? I, I love that, but I, I love how early ghost stories do seem to be this, you know, money-making propaganda scheme by the church. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you don't make amends now, come, come to us, give us money. Uh, light our candles, say our prayers, or terrible, terrible things will befall you because life is short and we are all going to die a terrible death at an early age. <laughs> it, it's so interesting how, how you know, the earliest ghost stories are these propaganda pieces almost from the church, but they've yeah. changed, they've developed in, in uh, recent years. How has the ghost changed from propaganda figure to what we know of now? Well, there are so many uh, changes, but one of the um, sorts of ghosts I really like are the ghosts you find in in, in ballads, which are basically popular culture. Mm -hmm. You could buy a ballad sheet for uh, a penny, um, or if you wanted it coloured, you paid tuppence for it. So they were really cheap, and they were uh, ballads uh, that people would get together in in pubs and taverns and, and sing together. And they were generally on really sensational themes of uh, murder and shipwreck and <laughs> robbery and uh, heaven knows what. But you can imagine that ghosts are, that they're involved in so many of these rather lurid aspects of life that, that you get a lot of ghosts in them as well. And the depictions that you see of ghosts, uh, which I've, I've got some in my book, are, are just so lovely at this point, because at this point, people really think that ghosts get up out of their graves. And so they depict this very literally. So they have the corpses dressed in shrouds, tied up at the top of the head. So they have this little top knot, which is rather sinister. And, and they, they're looking out of a little slit here, so you can see their faces. But of course, they're loose at the feet and they would be tied up in the grave, but they're loose because ghosts have to walk. Sure. And so they walk around in these wonderful flapping shrouds. But the stories of these ghosts are... Um, in a way, they're like a kind of moral system that is, it's not religious anymore. It's more of a secular system. So people to whom really bad things were done in life, like the poor uh, lovers who get jettisoned in favour of someone richer um, and who die of grief, they're the ones who come back. And in, in death, they, they're very, as ghosts, they're really powerful. And they come back and they find their faithless lovers and they say, something really terrible is going to happen to you now. You're going to get, and there's one particular one I can think of, where this uh, this woman is actually picked up by a demon and the demon just carries her off because of how badly she behaved to her to her fiance in her life so you get and you also get uh, you get people who've been murdered who come back and point accusing fingers at their murderers you even get ghosts who have been struck by conscience by guilty conscience and they come back and they say I'm terribly sorry, but uh, the money I stole is hidden under the flagstones in the cellar, or whatever it is. <laughs> but you get all of these w w wonderful, really wonderful stories. And then, of course, later, after that, ghosts become more mysterious. And 
we know less and less about them because, as you say, this idea of hunting for ghosts, we've been doing a lot of that. But I think the more we know and the more uh, systems of finding things out become more and more sophisticated. It's almost as though ghosts have retreated even further back into the shadows. I don't think we'll ever quite find out what they are. It almost sounds like, though, the, the point of the ghost as a cultural figure, if the witch is a story of patriarchy and the werewolf is a story of transformation and, and man's animal nature, then it almost sounds like the ghost is is the concept of mystery for mankind. It's it's mm. It encompasses all of the mysteries that we cannot answer. We don't know mm. what lies beyond. No, no sophisticated piece of measuring equipment can tell us what happens after you die, at least not to whatever we consider the soul or whatever we would you know, consider as, as that metaphysical part of what makes us alive. That piece of it, we don't know. I mean, we can certainly tell you what happens to a body, what happens to brain activity, that kind of thing. But it seems like the ghost is, a, is mystery if each of them is, is some kind of archetype. Mm. Does, does the idea of mystery, does the idea of, you know, not knowing something, is that um, a, a tie-in through, through the stories of ghosts? Or, you know, do you see them more as figures of uh, revelation instead of being figures of mystery themselves? I mean, it sounds like sometimes they've been figures of here's my murderer, here's my, you know, here's my final piece, uh, you know, here's here's all of the things left unsaid. They're so hard to pin down. Ghosts are incredibly slippery customers. We d- it's really hard to say, because in the one, the one sense, they, as you say, they, 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 they are mysterious. And um, I'm sure that's why they've become such uh, important figures for humanity generally, partly because that they are people, ghosts are people. They're, they're never just a, a, an external um, thing, like a, a werewolf is a different kind of creature. That they, they are human creatures, but they are made entirely mysterious by having died and somehow come back. So that's something that's, that, that's really, uh, you know, really um, um, strange about them. Um, but they, as you say, there's the revelation as as well. Uh, so they, we can never quite point at something that they do or something mm. they are and say, "That's it, got it." It's just in my my study of ghosts and and the way artists and writers have depicted and written about them, they go, they twist and turn, and they they do whatever is necessary at any one point. So in a way, they they are cultural constructions in some sense but in another way then they're undoubtedly real as well there is you can't really deny that there is something that exists but I think we we dress them up over over time so the idea of the ghost at least in in your study is um fairly centered on the idea of the British ghost, you know, the ghost that Mm. comes to us from, you know, that particular area of the world and art and things like that. 
have you made a study of the ghost, you know, the deceased afterlife figure um, in other cultures, in other parts of the world, in, in, in different kinds of histories and backgrounds? Uh, well, I'd, I'd love to do more of that. I've, I've read Japanese ghost stories, which are just wonderful because they're just slightly different to, to, to British ghost stories. Um, they seem, well, certainly to, I'm sure you've got a Japanese ghost story expert. They'd give you a much fuller answer. But, they, but to me, they, they, they often have ghosts that are connected to material objects more than we do. So you get a, a haunted tea kettle or a haunted mattress and and these objects are somehow related to something that's gone very badly wrong in life and so the ghost becomes uh, starts to haunt this thing and of course then it, it manages to make an effect on humans who who use it so think of that next time you put the kettle on um, but as as well as that I've, I've been I've conducted a very unscientific survey of Europeans, uh, European friends of one kind or another, to find out how they feel about ghosts. Because I just assumed that everyone was as obsessed with ghosts as certainly <laughs> we are here in the UK, uh, which is pretty obsessed. But um, I found out, well, I spoke to the French and the German people I spoke to, um, they both said, well, ghosts are part of our culture, but they're part of a, a broad culture of of folklore. Um, they're not such a big thing for us at all. Uh, a Belgian friend said, you're all nuts. Uh, you know, why are you so completely uh, obsessed with ghosts? I, I think she equates ghosts and English custard in the I think she puts them in the same bracket as weird English things that you know, no one else should really bother with. So I was beginning to think that maybe ghosts weren't a European phenomenon. But then I spoke to uh, Polish and Czech friends both of whom said, of course, we've got ghosts. We've got masses of ghosts. And it turned out that it turns out that that they have quite a highly developed ghost culture, especially um, like ours, relating to historic houses and places. I think their ghosts like ours um, are some way representative of our history as well. The idea that ghosts are history um is is incredibly fascinating because you know if not for ghosts history is just whatever somebody tells you it is right um are there instances where uh you know these miraculous events have happened and a ghost allegedly comes back and and gives a story gives a tale um and it inspires further research into that historical area or is it more just uh maybe the more haunted the place is, the more tourist dollars that it gets. I mean, are, are we, are basically, you know, what kind of reverence are we treating these tales of ghosts with? Are we, are we more often than not um, treating them as, as a tourist attraction, as a figment of culture, or is it, is it something that in some parts of the world, at least, are given a little bit more uh, credence, a little bit more due? Yes, that's interesting, because uh, certainly you can, you can always, track the way that uh, organisations in Britain, like the, the National Trust or Historic Royal Palaces or whatever, they've changed the way they uh, market ghosts or they treat the, the ghosts, which they, they know inhabit some of their properties. Because if you go back 20 or 30 years, there would be no mention of 
of a, a ghost in a place like Ham House, say, in, um, to the west of London, which is famously haunted. Whereas now at Ham House, the National Trust actually market go- the ghost and they market, market it as somewhere where uh, you might actually see a ghost if you went on a special ghost tour of the property. So that's interesting that they, they certainly make try to make money out of it uh, in the way that any haunted pub or restaurant the, you can it's absolute gold dust to have a, a resident ghost it's because it stopped being something that might put you off and started being a real selling point but I, I think it goes deeper than that than that and I think that the the idea that there are these historic ghosts and as I said at, um, at Ham House this particular house uh, that was built in the 17th century just west of London is haunted by reportedly haunted by uh, the Duchess of Lauderdale, who was the first person to live there. And she was a very formidable woman. Rumour had it that she did away with her first husband <laughs> in order to marry this uh, really much more powerful man. And she, she was wealthy and she was powerful. She was very influential. But she, in the end, she uh, was uh, uh, couldn't go out. She was, suffered very badly with gout and couldn't leave her beloved house. And she actually said... Uh, now I'm I'm never going to leave my beloved Ham House. I will be here forever. And rumour has it that you can hear her footsteps on the stairs. You can get the scent of her rose perfume in the hall. There are all sorts of places in the house that are reputed to be haunted by this figure. And there's something really um, romantic about that. But it all, it's also something that tells us more about history, it brings history to life far more than a portrait does. To have this, well, I was about to say a living example, it's not exactly a living example, but but to have this example of a a historic figure who's actually there, potentially there in the house, like the best sort of costumed guide you could possibly have. And in a way, actually one thing I love about ghosts is that they, 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 they cut across barriers uh, uh, sex and class that you know you get as many male ghosts as as female ghosts or you get ghosts of all social classes but one interesting thing is is that uh, aristocratic ghosts seem to exert a particular fascination and it always strikes me in historic houses when you walk down these grand corridors with their portraits going back and back and back to elizabethan times perhaps before then a ghost is somehow just like a portrait, but just so much better to actually have a living proof of your lineage if you're still part of that family. If you've got a ghost to boast about walking around, that's like saying, look how long we've been in this house. Imagine that. (laughs) So you've said that you don't, you've never seen a ghost yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the fascination then come from? I mean, do you feel that you've had an interaction at some point and that guided you? Or is it simply just you just love ghost stories? <laughs> well, I do love ghost stories. I really do. But also I, I did, I have had an experience. Um, I haven't seen anything, but I've had an experience with a sort of ghost actually. It was a a house, it was in a house in the north of England that was lent to me and a friend when we wanted a little holiday. And this is going back a long time. This is going back 22, 23 years. Um, But we, we were lent the house by 
another friend of mine, who, and it belonged to her great aunt, and her great aunt was dying, but she really, really wanted to be in, in this particular house. But her family wouldn't let her be there. They said, oh, no, you'll fall over, you'll have a fall, you'll need the doctor, it's not practical. And so rather than her being there, um, my friend and I were there instead. And the moment we opened the door, it was as though there was someone standing there shouting, get out, get out, you're not welcome. And wherever we were in the house, it was as though there was someone at our shoulder shouting, plucking at our clothes, just making us unwelcome, trying to force us out. And I don't know, my interpretation of that feeling of just being so frightened and so uncomfortable in this house was that it was the the, the great aunt spirit. She was very near to death. She knew that she desperately wanted one last time in her, her old home. And what were these young people doing there who had nothing to do with it? Quite understandable. But the friend I was with, had a different interpretation, as so often happens with ghosts. And she thought it was something different, that it was just haunted, um, that it was just a haunted house and that it wasn't to do with this particular person. So who knows? But I can remember when I left that house, just closing the door, and it was as though a great weight that had been on our spirits for a week just lifted. I, I couldn't look back because I was just so convinced there'd be something looking at me out of a window. But, um, and I would never go back to that house. And I've never felt anything like that again. So when people tell me about their experiences, I'm always inclined to believe them, because I, I sort of feel as though I know what it's like. So I, I, you know, what something you just said sort of struck me, because I think that there is sort of this at least modern distinction um, between a ghost, you know, a ghost's existence, a ghost walking around and having sort of uh, uh, personal ambulatory freedom, and the idea of the haunted house. You know, we, we uh, the, the first ghost story was, uh, what was that, House on Haunted Hill, or not the first ghost story, the first sort of haunted house story mm-hmm. uh, that's credited as the House on Haunted Hill. There's this idea that some places are just haunted. And what that means for some people is that it's filled with ghosts, right? But for other people, it just seems to be that this is just a place where things happen. Have you, uh, you know, I know that you're also fascinated not just with ghosts, but sort of with the spirit of a place. Is Mm -hmm. there a distinction uh, there to be made where where it's not necessarily a ghost, but maybe a place itself that is is the, the entity that you're interacting with? Mm, mm. No, that that's interesting. I think houses in it certainly in literature, houses take on a whole character of, of their own, um, become very uh, very ghostly places. I think the the first instance of this is a, a a wonderful story by the writer Horace Walpole that he published in the towards the end of the eighteenth century called The Castle of Otranto, and it's often thought to be the very first Gothic novel. And in it, well, the castle itself is is full of ghosts. There are ghosts down in the crypt who are skeletons wrapped up in their shrouds and they turn and they're all very terrifying. A a giant ghost that stalks the castle who only meet right at the end. There are figures who step down out of their painted portraits and trudge off down corridors. But as well as all these figures, 
the main um, haunted entity is the castle. It just feels as though the castle itself is somehow alive. And Walpole even describes it, the, the crypt, as though he describes the, the, the doors creaking in the breeze. And you get this really creepy sense of the castle itself breathing very slowly in and out with this awful creaking sound. So he started it, essentially. Horace Walpole began it. And then but so many people took up this idea of of the place. And it was generally, at this point, a great castle that was incredibly old. So, of course, that would justify it being haunted by very ancient ghosts. But having ghosts were... Um, that had room to to breathe and to hide as well, because most people, until relatively recently, lived in such crowded houses that there was no room for ghosts. That there was, I mean, you probably couldn't. It was, would have been difficult to sit in a room by yourself. There were so many other people around: uh, family, uh, servants, um, uh, animals, all sorts of people. It's only more recently that we've had that luxury of 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 the uh, the unused um, room, uh, uh, the, the spare room that might have a ghost, or very grand houses with ho- a whole wing that might might not be be used. So that idea was really seized upon by writers of the of the 19th century but it was almost became becomes really fascinating at the end towards the end of the 19th century when there are lots of different writers trying to come up with uh, uh, new novel ideas about ghosts and how they might um, interact with you because they're trying to sell their stories to magazines and so they have to get their unique point of view across and they start to make ghosts haunt ordinary houses, little newly built houses. And there's something about that that's even more frightening because it's you can somehow think that a story about a haunted castle or enormous country house, well, you get this vicarious thrill of horror, but it's nothing to do with you because most of us don't live in houses like that. But the idea of a, of a small, uh, very ordinary house being haunted, well, that somehow really hits home. I'll tell you just one last thing about this as well, something that really struck me. A friend who lives in a wonderful uh, Elizabethan house near, uh, near, here, near me in Suffolk told me that she knew of a house, a very old house, that had been moved. The spotted Sudon, I think, was beginning to get flooded. And so they decided to simply move the entire house about 100 yards, not, not, not very far away. But apparently when it was moved, Everything was exactly the same, apart from the house's atmosphere. She said it had absolutely no atmosphere at all. So some, whatever it was, as well as the bricks and water that kept it together, that whatever feeling or spirit was in the house just vanished. That's incredible. So the spirit's mm. more tied to the place than, than the mm. bricks itself. Do you have a favourite ghost story? Is there a favourite ghost out there that intrigues you more than anyone else? Well, I think if I can have two ghost stories... You can have two. You can have two as a treat. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. 
<laughs> There's a story I, I love, which was recorded in the 17th century by a writer called John Aubrey, who was a historian. Um, he was really worried that uh, because of the rapid rate of progress in the 17th century, what he called gunpowder and the printing press, that old stories were being forgotten. And so he tried to write down as many as them uh, as he could. And he didn't change them into fully fledged ghost stories. He just wrote down these mysterious little snippets. I, I'm going to read this to you. It's only very brief. Um, but he said it happened in the year 1670, not far from Sirencester in the west of England, was an apparition being demanded whether a good spirit or a bad, that was the question you're always supposed to ask ghosts, it returned no answer, but it disappeared with a curious perfume and a most melodious twang. <laughs> That's really mysterious. I love a musical ghost. <laughs> <laughs> but the other, I think that the ghost stories I love most of all are those written by M.R. James, Montague, Montague Rhodes James, at the beginning of the 20th century. And he wrote them, he was the master of Christ Church College, um, um, in, sorry, he was the master of King's College in Cambridge. And he uh, wrote these stories to entertain his colleagues and his students. And they would all be about some academic uh, who got somehow embroiled in some supernatural mystery because they were too curious and because they thought that they knew everything. And so if they were faced with some mystery, they'd quickly get to the bottom of it. But of course they don't. And one of the most wonderful stories, which I recommend if anyone hasn't read it, is called A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, which just is the most uncanny of all stories about a professor who goes to the East Anglian coast, which is, I can tell you, a pretty uh, gloomy and, and quite a haunted and spooky sort of place in the winter. And he gets embroiled in this mystery. I'm not going to tell the story. I think you, it's too easy to spoil it. You just have, <laughs> have to read it. But it has one of the most wonderful atmospheres I've ever come across. So you have made quite a study of ghosts as a cultural entity. Um, ever since publishing your book, you said that you've gotten a lot of people telling you their own ghost stories. You could mm -hmm. write a whole new book about people's current ghost stories. The figure of the ghost has changed throughout history, at least as, uh, through your research. There, you know, there was the Christian propaganda ghost. There was the come to church and give us money ghost. There was the, <laughs> you know, we've got hungry ghosts in Japan. You know, <laughs> lots of different ways in which the ghost has, has given us warning, has given us comfort, has been a figure of mystery for us. But in your stories that you're hearing now in 2019... What is the ghost to us in present day? And where where is the ghost taking us? Gosh, well, a, a lot of the ghosts, ghost stories I've heard recently, they, they're not about, people have stopped seeing ghosts so much. Mm. Or if they do see them, then perhaps it's a, a historic ghost. So a ghost of someone, we know what they look like, or mm. if the, the ghost of a, a former prime minister or something, then we know what that person looks like through portraits. So it's quite easy to imagine. But it's almost as though they are just presences now that people quite often sense. And perhaps not not fearsome presences, but just 
people who perhaps are known to us um, and that we want to be close to still. I certainly remember being a child and asking my mother if she'd ever seen a ghost. And what she said really surprised me. She said no. And her her father had died only a year or so before. And she said, but I'd love to see a, the ghost of my, of my father. Um, that would bring me a lot of comfort. Mm. And that so surprised me. It so surprised me that I remember it now, nearly 40 years later, um, that just how she felt about it, that for her, a ghost wasn't a frightening thing. Um, even though to us, what a mystery to suddenly see someone. Um, but it, it w- would would have been a comforting figure. But I think it's almost as though now when, as I say, we've got this whole world of information at our, our fingertips, it's almost as though the ghost now offers us another way of thinking about the past and really feeling the past, I think, um, that we find... Um, irresistible. It's something that no amount of of sort of intellectual knowledge, which we can find out so easily, can quite give us that. I think we want that that feeling, that sensation, that sense of a presence, that sense of layers and layers of the past underneath our feet. Do you hope that one day there's a ghost story about you? (laughs) Oh, you think I might come back? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd certainly love to a ghost I, I think <laughs> it sort of depends depends on the kind of ghost we're, we're not going to be in this medieval house for, for very much longer so I certainly haven't seen any ghosts so far but maybe if before we leave one might just show itself what I've certainly heard from friends who've told me their ghost stories is that ghosts don't like change if anything changes in their physical environment, they often start to show themselves at that point, because certainly if you try to put an extension on your house, they'll almost certainly come out and let you know that they're not very happy about it. They're very conservative ghosts. Ghosts are not fans of HGTV. They're not big fans of the renovation. <laughs> no, I, I very much know they'd probably sit watching it in absolute horror. <laughs> they, really like it. they like things to remain the same. <laughs> So, I mean, keep writing about ghosts and maybe you'll find one. Speaking of writing about ghosts, you've got another book coming out. I have, indeed. It's coming out next year or in 2020. It's called The Spirit of Place, Artists, Writers, Landscape. And it's all about how the British landscape has been imagined by artists and writers and everyone else over the years from the Dark Ages to the present day. And there's quite a lot in it about spooky landscapes as well, because I so wanted to bring in the ghostly aspect into this, into my my interest in landscape and my interest in ghosts. I felt just came together perfectly in parts of this of this book. Well, Miss Susan Owens, I cannot thank you enough for spending your time with me again. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad that we did this. Pleasure. It's been wonderful. Folks, I truly hope that you go out and immediately purchase uh, Susan Owen's book, The Ghost, uh, A Cultural History. It's a wonderful read. It's incredibly fascinating. The art is gorgeous. And it's just a wonderful way to sort of uh, think about ghosts 
in a different way than we normally see them depicted in culture these days. The Travel Channel, the History Channel, you know, all these different uh, places on TV and in media sort of have, have turned them into these spooky creatures to be hunted. And I really appreciated your take on, on reviving the idea of a ghost as a cultural figure, as a figure of story, as a figure of reverence and comfort. And, um, and I, I love that aspect of it. So I think, uh, I think it'll be a wonderful read for people in the new year. And this is the time of ghost stories, really. <laughs> it certainly is. L light that fire. Get together with your friends and family and, and have that wonderful old-fashioned thing of reading ghost stories aloud. It's such fun. Well, Susan, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you had a happy holiday and I wish you nothing but the best in the new year. I hope you'll come back <laughs> for a third time <laughs> when I'd the new book to. comes out. <laughs> Rioters, thank you all so much for sticking with me here at Inciting a Riot, the podcast. It's the final episode of 2019. I couldn't be more thrilled with the warm reception uh, that this show has received this year and every year for the past 10 years, 10 years, guys, of podcasting. It's kind of crazy to think about um, how all of our lives have changed, how the show has grown. Uh, I've literally seen some of your kids grow up. I've, I've known some of you guys out there listening to this show, uh, you know, coming to um, super moots, coming to meetups, writing into the show, letting me know how the show's affected your life and, and uh, you know, the kinds of things that, that uh, uh, the kinds of ways that the show's impacted you um, over the past 10 years. It's incredible to see some of you have gone from single to married to having kids and, and the way that your careers have changed. It's, it's incredible and it's been such a gift. Uh, to continue to do this show. So uh, once again, if you'd like to see the show continue, if you'd like to uh, uh, help um, the show grow in the new year, uh, a really great way of doing that is giving as little as a dollar per episode um, through Patreon, patreon.com slash inciting projects. Uh, it helps this show and Inciting a Brouhaha cover things like monthly show costs, uh, software upgrades, uh, hardware upgrades. Um, it helped me get a new very used, <laughs> but new to me, uh, MacBook, so that I had a uh, better way of, um, uh, you know, recording the shows and getting better audio quality and things like that. Uh, upgraded the mic stand, got some better pop filters, got all sorts of stuff. So the, hopefully the audio quality for this show and Inciting a Brouhaha has gotten a little bit better this year. And it's done things like upgrade software, pay for different hosting costs and things like that so that, uh, you know, the, the show can continue to maintain a presence uh, online. Um, also, uh, feel free, lots of other free ways to interact with the show. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. A really awesome way to help other people find this show is to rate the show on iTunes. Five stars are appreciated. Five stars or, you know, it's the only way that you can rate the show on iTunes. That's it. That's the only rating that you can get. Five stars. That's it. <laughs> if you like this show um, and a dollar per episode isn't something you want to give, please, please, please consider going and leaving a comment, uh, a rating on iTunes, um, Google Play, wherever you download the show, because it really does help bump us up and helps other people find the show whenever they're searching for things like pagan content, uh, stories about ghosts, uh, you know, all that kind of thing. The more comments, and activity that the show has uh, on those platforms, the higher up in the ratings that it goes. Uh, feel free to like um, the show on Facebook, 
uh, facebook.com slash inciting a riot podcast uh you can also follow me on twitter i'm at inciting a riot and of course the show uh the show's notes um and an occasional blog post are at inciting feel free to email me as well i love hearing from you guys it's been a while since i've gotten emails because i know social media has sort of taken over the way that we communicate but it's still nice to get the occasional letter and feedback so if you have uh, any feedback for susan owens um i know she doesn't really have a public platform so if you, there's a message you'd like me to get to her uh you can always email the show firelight at inciting that's f-i-r-e-l-y-t-e at inciting that's it that's it for the riot in 2019 that's it for the riot for the past decade thank you all so much i will see you in 2020 and i will leave you but as always i will leave you with love and light firelight <laughs>